Uh, we're coming back to 2 Corinthians, and we're going to be in chapter 8. Just make sure I'm not blocking it. This is the word of the Lord. We want you to know, brothers, about the grace of God that has been given among the churches of Macedonia. For in a severe test of affliction, their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. For they gave according to their means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own accord, begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints, and this not as we expected, but they gave themselves first to the Lord and then by the will of God to us. Accordingly, we urged Titus that as he had started, so he should complete among you this act of grace. But as you excel in everything, in faith, in speech, in knowledge, in all earnestness, and in our love for you, see that you excel in this act of grace also. I say this not as a command, but to prove by the earnestness of others that your love also is genuine. For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And in this matter I give my judgment. This benefits you, who a year ago started not only to do this work, but also to desire to do it. So now finish doing it as well, so that your readiness in desiring it may be matched by your completing it out of what you have. For if the readiness is there, it is acceptable according to what a person has, not according to what he does not have. For I do not mean that others should be eased and you burdened, but that as a matter of fairness, your abundance at the present time should supply their need so that their abundance may supply your need, that there may be fairness. As it is written, whoever gathered much had nothing left over, and whoever gathered little had no lack. This is the word of God. Uh, join me in prayer. Let's pray together. God, we thank you uh, just for the Sunday, and uh, we thank you, God, that we can be reminded of things like your holiness. Uh, we can be reminded of, of who you are, and even in this time, as we come and hear your word, uh, we, we trust that your word bears fruit and yields fruit in its time. Uh, I remember uh, in Psalm 1 uh, how it says the one who meditates on your word day and night is like a tree planted in water and uh, yields fruit uh, in season. And so uh, I do pray, God, that you would uh, plant seeds within our hearts through your word. And you know, whether it's relevant uh, to us today or not, uh, we do know that in due time, in its right season, you will bear fruit through it. So fill us with your word today. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. All right. We are coming back to this sermon series on 2 Corinthians. And I, I want to remind you the reason why we started looking at this letter. Well, we looked at this letter because I wanted to reflect on this theme of power and weakness. Because there are so many things within Christianity and the Christian faith that are paradoxical and counterintuitive in terms of the way the world typically works. And if you operate according to the values of our world or our society or even New York in particular, then what we end up doing is we end up leaning on things like our wealth or our status or our talents uh, for power and for strength. And what ends up happening when you do that is you actually distance yourself from experiencing the power of God because the power of God comes by way of our weakness. And on the other hand, uh, if you do embrace your weakness, uh, you experience a lot of spiritual benefit from it. And today what we're going to do is we're going to talk about generosity. And generosity kind of relates to power because generosity is about giving away the things that you might derive power from. 
But in this act of giving, the paradox is as you give those things away, as you give away uh, what you might consider to be power, you actually experience greater fullness because of the grace that is given to us through Jesus Christ. Now, when it comes to the topic of generosity, I think it does require us to reflect a little bit about money in terms of what it does and why it's usually so important to us. During the early years of uh, my marriage, and Jen and I, when we were married, uh, I would say the thing that we had the most conflict about was probably our finances. It was probably about money. And we just came from very different perspectives about how we should use our money, how sh we should spend our money, uh, how much of our money we should uh, save. And to kind of give you an example, this is an example I usually give in terms of the different perspective that we had with respect to money. Uh, if we were to purchase a car, um, we would both agree that, yeah, we need to get a car, but I would be the type to say, well, let's get the bare minimum features of the car. And um, case in point, the car that I had um, was like this Honda Civic that I bought in seminary. And I got the most minimal feature. I didn't even have power windows. So I had like the kind of <laughs> windows where you roll up. And then the most annoying thing about that car is like it didn't have the remote trunk opening feature. So like I would carry all these bags and I would just remember, oh, I wish I had bought that button. But I would have to put the key in the trunk and open it. Uh, that was the kind of person I was in terms of money. Uh, you know, Jen's mentality was very different in, in that she was like, well, why not just get the things that make our lives much more comfortable? Why not get that trunk opening feature, right? Why not get the, uh, the power windows and why not get the sunroof? And so uh, when we got married, right, these perspectives obviously clashed. Not only that, but when we also first got married, you know, our anniversary coincides with I guess our anniversary being at this church because the day after we got married, that's when we started attending Good News Church. And uh, we came to New York to serve this church, but when we made that decision, uh, it wasn't like the most ideal of circumstances. Uh, usually when you get married, you kind of want to be secure. You want to have jobs, right? Uh, but when we made the decision to come to New York, both of us were actually unemployed and we had very little money and the world was in a financial crisis. And so in order to come to New York, Jen and I, we both had to find some jobs. And the problem was I had just graduated seminary. And as fun as seminary is, it gives you no marketable skills in the job market, and, uh, except for the ones related to, to ministry. And Jen had a actually better chance because she was a teacher. But because of the financial crisis, there was a hiring freeze at all the public schools. And so because of, budget like because of the budget constraints during the crisis. And so um, our circumstances during our first year of marriage uh, were ones in which we, we had a lot of conflict about money. And you know, eventually we both found jobs and things worked out, but we did argue a lot about money in those early years. Uh, back then, uh, the way I interpreted our conflict was our conflicts are being uh, rooted in money has the fact that we have little money now. And I always thought, well, when we make more money and when we're much more financially comfortable, then maybe those conflicts will go away. But now when I look back on those times, I actually think it had very little to do with money. Uh, we think about money as dollars and cents, but it's not actually about dollars and cents. Money actually tells us about the things that we value in our hearts. Uh, when I do premarital counseling, typically there's a session where I talk about finances and I usually tell couples who disagree about how to spend their money the issue is usually not about financial circumstances and it's usually not about affordability. 
I think for the most part, people uh, approach their money in such a way that they can afford. But the disagreement is actually about what each person values and because each person values different things. That's where the conflict arises. So for those who really just want to save their money and invest their money and grow their money for the future, uh, that person probably values security. Uh, you always want to save, you always want to invest, you always want to grow your money because you never know what might happen in the future. You never know when you might lose your job. And so you want to feel secure and ready and prepared for those moments. Those who want to spend their money on things like nicer apartments or live in a nicer neighborhood or on things like travel or restaurants, it might mean that what you value is comfort or you value freedom to make certain choices or you value uh, happiness and joy and these kind of uh, fun experiences. So money is not about the dollars and cents. Money is ultimately about what we value. If you think about generosity, one of the reasons why it can be so difficult to give away our money is because what that represents is we are giving away something that we value. Uh, if you value security that money provides, giving away a portion of that money is going to be, uh, in your mind, you're giving away a sense, a portion of your sense of security. If you value comfort or freedom or happiness or the conveniences that money provides, when you give money away, you're giving a portion of your sense of these things as well. And we all have a, a certain level of tolerance in terms of what we can tolerate to give away. And therefore, when we think about our generosity, we, we think about it to the degree that we can still hold on to what we value uh, to a level that is tolerable to us. And then whatever we have to spare, uh, that's what we will give away. And that's usually how we think about generosity. So generosity is really based on the amount of money that we give. Um, and instead of, um, I guess I would say, how the Bible would look at generosity and how the Bible would define generosity. And that's part of the complexity of this, uh, the sin of greed. All of us know greed is a sin. All of us know greed is bad. But we don't often associate greed with ourselves. It's really hard to think of ourselves as greedy people. Uh, it's much easier to judge other people as being greedy. Uh, and we rarely see the greed within our own hearts. And I think there's a lot of reasons for this. Uh, one reason is uh, we probably hang out with people who are in a similar socioeconomic level as us, or we probably hang out with people who might even be wealthier than us, and not even just hang out, but work with people who might be wealthier than us. And so kind of relative to the people that are around us, we never feel like uh, we have much to give, right? We're always trying to, to advance and to gain and accumulate more. We live in New York City. It's a very expensive city to live in. So given the cost of living in New York, there is a sense in which we're always uh, poor, right? We always feel poor. We always feel like we don't have enough because cost of living is so high. We can always get a better apartment. We can always move to a better neighborhood. We can always send our kids to a, a private school or a better school. We can always get that a better vacation because we're working so hard. And this kind of environment that we live in, I, I think, makes us feel like we never have enough. We're always lacking. And when you feel like you don't have enough, it's hard to feel as though greed is a problem that we have. Moreover, I think greed is a little bit different than other kinds of sins. So uh, many years ago, someone asked me, you know, why, why do churches take uh, such a hard line on sex and sexual sins? And they don't seem to take this hard line on greed because greed seems to be a much bigger problem in our society. And just to give you some context, he was talking about it as a bigger problem because of what happened to the financial markets in 2007. And I thought, I said, that's a good, that's a good point. That's a fair question. Uh, but then I thought about it and I said, you know, I think it's because it's really hard to 
concretely identify greed. You know, if you uh, murder somebody, uh, if you commit adultery, it's pretty clear that you've committed a sinful act, right? You either did it or you, or you didn't do it. But with greed, it's a little bit harder to identify because how much money are you supposed to give away in order to be innocent from greed? Uh, how much money can you keep in order to not be greedy? And there's, there's no concrete answer for that. Everybody's going to be different, and everyone's circumstances are different. And so someone like that widow with these two copper coins um, who may not have much to give, that person may actually be more generous than somebody like Warren Buffett, who's giving away billions and billions and billions of dollars to philanthropic efforts. And what about this concept of a tithe in the Bible? Uh, isn't that the Bible's way of quantifying generosity? And if you're not familiar with a tithe, uh, a tithe is basically that principle where you're, you give 10% of your income, and it comes from the Old Testament. And what I usually say in membership class is, I actually don't think tithing is a New Testament concept because tithing is mentioned three times in the Gospels, and it's always mentioned in a negative context. The Pharisees, they thought they were righteous people because of their tithe, and Jesus is rebuking them for their self-righteous attitudes. The principle of, the, of giving in the New Testament, I don't think it's 10%. I don't think it's a tithe, but I think the principle is actually generosity. Be generous. And as we look at this passage, we're going to see how Paul understands generosity, especially as it relates to our understanding of the gospel and of what Jesus did. If you look at this passage, Paul talks about gener the generosity of the churches in Macedonia. And the churches in Macedonia were remarkable for their generosity for many reasons, and I'll, I'll get into it. But the more I reflect on this passage, I see so much uh, pastoral wisdom coming from the Apostle Paul. What he does is he begins by telling them about the grace of God that has been given among the churches in Macedonia. And these Macedonian churches, they were not uh, wealthy churches. These were not wealthy people, but what he says here, they were extremely poor. One of the reasons for their poverty is because they were undergoing persecution. And if you remember our sermon series from the book of Revelation, one of the things that I talked about are these trade guilds. And this is kind of how things worked in places like Asia Minor. If you had a business, then the way to succeed in that business was to be part of a guild. And the problem for the Christian is that if these guilds would engage in the worship of false idols, and so if they wanted to be faithful to their worship to God, they couldn't participate in idolatry, and they couldn't participate in these trade guilds. And so by refusing to participate, their businesses would suffer greatly, and they would be poor as a result. I don't know if this is the exact circumstances in Macedonia, but you can see how the persecution of Christians can actually lead to extreme poverty. And despite their extreme poverty, Paul is saying these people were incredibly generous. Their financial circumstances, I think, are significant because Paul is using them as an example of generosity. It's like using the widow with two copper coins and not the Warren Buffetts. And so what do we learn about generosity from the churches in Macedonia? The first thing we learn is this. Paul he tells us that they gave out of their own accord. And I think that's a very important point. We'll see this in chapter 9 as well, but generous giving, it cannot be done out of compulsion. It cannot be done uh, if you're coerced to give and to be generous because then it's not generosity. Uh, Paul, he's trying to raise money for uh, the churches in Jerusalem because in Jerusalem they had experienced a famine and there, were, there, were, there was a lot of hardship. So he's kind of doing this fundraiser effort and the church leaders decided 
they all got together and they said, let's commit to raising money to help out these people in Jerusalem because they are going hungry. But you know, in talking about generosity, if you look at the passage, what's interesting is what he does not mention about generosity. He actually doesn't talk about the hardships of Jerusalem at all. He doesn't talk about their suffering. He doesn't talk about how they're going hungry. Uh, that's, if you think about it, that's a lot, how a lot of people raise money these days because, quite frankly, it's a very effective strategy in terms of fundraising. Uh, the person fundraising will show a video or will show some photos of, of suffering people, suffering children, uh, and say, look, you can help these people. And these images are meant to evoke compassion so that people will kind of be stirred in their hearts to give their money away in order to make a difference. But Paul doesn't do that here. And you kind of wonder, why doesn't Paul do that? Well, he knows that this Corinthian church, these are a, this is a boastful congregation. Uh, these are people who have the problem of pride. And if he told them, hey, you can help these believers in Jerusalem so much, then the risk is they might actually think higher of themselves. They might pat themselves on the back because they were able to give so much of their money, and therefore their generosity would ultimately be self-serving because it would make them feel superior to others. Like, oh, I have the power to give, and I'm such a good person. Uh, even worse, they might actually look at the poorer churches as being inferior because they couldn't contribute as much or give as much. And that is the problem with money and generosity is it can actually turn into some kind of competition where we end up feeling better about our own generosity, uh, and that ends up becoming self-serving rather than life-giving. And so Paul, very wisely, he doesn't talk about the hardships in Jerusalem, but rather he talks about these poor churches in Macedonia, and he says, look, this is an example of generosity because we didn't tell them to give. They gave out of their own accord, not under compulsion, but they did it out of the sincerity of their own heart. And that's really important when it comes to generosity. Second, they gave sacrificially. And what's remarkable about the kind of generosity that uh, the Macedonian church churches showed is not simply that they gave anything at all in their poverty, but Paul actually says they gave even beyond their means. In other words, they didn't just give what they could afford to give, but they gave more than what they could afford to give. They gave sacrificially in such a way that it had to have made a negative impact on their own lives. And if you want a practical question about to ask about um, your own sense of generosity and how much uh, we should be giving uh, to others. One thing you can ask is, is your generosity making a negative impact on your life? Because in some sense, that's what it means to be sacrificial. Are you losing something important to you in order to give? For the Macedonian churches to go beyond their means in their extreme poverty, that's a hard ask, right? Nobody can ask somebody in that position to, to give anything, which is why Paul never asked them to do it. And not, not only that, but Paul, he's an apostle here, so he has some kind of spiritual authority. If he commanded them to give, he said, you should give to the churches in Jerusalem, they would probably do it. But Paul doesn't do that. Paul doesn't ask that. He knows it wouldn't be right, and he wants them to give out of their own accord. And that's why I appreciate how Paul goes out of his way to even tell the Corinthians, look, I am not commanding you to give, uh, you should do it out of your own accord. Um, but what I want you to know is, uh, look at these Macedonian churches. They were so touched by the grace of God that they even gave out beyond their means. He wants to give them the sense of freedom to give of their own accord because he knows that when giving is done out of compulsion, when it's manipulated, it's actually not generosity at all. Third, 
Paul tells us they gave themselves first to the Lord. And I actually think that's probably the most significant point here and the most significant thing that we can learn about generosity. Because on one level, uh, we can say that by giving themselves first to the Lord, uh, they had this understanding, this right understanding of a biblical principle of stewardship. That is, they had this sense that everything they had was not theirs, but everything belonged to God. And uh, we are simply called to manage and steward all the money and possessions that we have in such a way that is pleasing to God. And while that's true, I think the greater significance is that by giving themselves to the Lord, they were given the power to be sacrificially generous. We said uh, money is connected to the things that we value in our hearts. Money is important to us because we value security and we think money gives us security. Because we value comfort and we think money gives us comfort. We value freedom, power, status, whatever it is, um, money supposedly gives us these things. But the problem is, if we believe that money is where we ultimately find these things and we look for these things in money and wealth, then of course we're going to be reluctant to be generous because giving our money is going to hurt us. Uh, In a place like New York, money represents a lot of these things. And that's probably why part of the reason, or that's probably part of the reason why New York did not even make Barna's top 50 most generous cities. Uh, Think about the concentration of wealth in New York City, and New York did not make the top 50 list in Barna's um, uh, study uh, or survey of charitable giving. Uh, We live in a city that values wealth and money because of what it supposedly promises to give. And so what everyone does is we, we end up chasing more and we end up giving less because we want what wealth promises to give us. Uh, generosity will feel like we are losing something that we may not be willing or ready to give up. But what if we don't feel like we are losing that much through our generosity um, because we have something that is far more valuable, so much so that we actually feel wealthy. You know, that's the interesting thing here, because as Paul encourages the Corinthians to prove their sincerity and their generosity, he says this in verse 9, and I think it's probably the key verse in this passage. He says, for you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though he was rich, yet for your sake he became poor, so that you by his poverty might become rich. And obviously he's talking about salvation, but he's using this language of rich and poor. Paul is saying that, look, you know the generosity that God has shown to you in the person and in the work of Jesus Christ. You know that even though Jesus was infinitely wealthy, in that he was sitting on a throne full of glory, he emptied himself of these things and he became poor. And his poverty wasn't simply material in nature because his wealth wasn't material in nature, but his poverty was existential. Uh, If you think about poverty, poverty is not always about material possessions, but poverty is associated with a whole lot of other things like powerlessness and shame and vulnerability. And that is what Jesus voluntarily became when he took on flesh. And yes, why did he do that? Why did he become poor? And the answer that Paul gives is so that we might become rich. Just as his poverty was not material in nature, neither is his sense of wealth that he gives to us. You see, wealth is associated with security and joy and freedom and comfort and hope. But that's actually what Jesus gives us through his blood, right? In exchange for his poverty, he gives us spiritual wealth. We try to look for this this kind of wealth through our material wealth, but we will actually never find it through material wealth. What money does is it gives us this mirage in the desert, 
and we walk to it instinctually without ever thinking that it's actually a mirage. Uh, you know, I know sermons on money and generosity are like not the most inspiring sermons, and uh, you know, we were afraid like, oh, if it's a sermon about money and generosity, you know, we're afraid it's going to make us feel guilty that we're not giving enough, and um, that's not what I'm trying to do here because I don't think that's what Paul is trying to do here. I don't think that's what Paul is saying. Even though he's talking about generosity, this is not about a, this is not a sermon about giving up the things that we love and the things that we value, but it's actually a sermon about having received the things that deep in our hearts we long for, deep in our hearts we value, things that we have received in Jesus Christ through his poverty, and therefore it gives us freedom to be generous freedom to be generous of our own accord. Uh, one of my interests in terms of reading outside of, you know, things like Bible and history, uh, I, actually, I actually like to read financial books. Uh, I like to read, I like to listen to podcasts on investing and financial planning, and uh, there's these two books that I'm going to read after uh, my classes are done uh, on real estate investment, and, you know, these are just interesting topics for me to read. And you know what they all promised? You know what they all say? Uh, why you should invest your money, grow your money, grow your wealth, get into real estate, all of these things? They're promising you financial freedom, right? And that's what we all want. We want financial freedom. They're all saying you don't have to be enslaved to your 9 to 5 or I guess in New York, right, 8 to midnight <laughs> uh, kind of jobs. And you can invest and grow your money and your wealth so that you can finally be financially free. That's the promise that they're giving you. That's the dream that they're painting for you. Jesus gives us an alternate vision of financial freedom that comes to the cross. Because the dreams and the promises of money and wealth, I think what it does is it actually enslaves us. It ultimately keeps us in the spiritually dry desert where we will wither away and die. Because money has the power to keep us in bondage. Money has the power to enslave us, to control us, to do certain things and to act in certain ways so that we feel like we have to hold on to it. We feel like we can't live without it. We feel like it is our salvation. And that's, that's bondage. That's enslavement. That's what our uh, difficulty and struggles with generosity actually tell us. It tells us we are not financially free at all because we're actually in financial bondage. We trust our money way more to do way more for us than it actually can. And that's not freedom. Through the cross, Jesus gives us real freedom because what he does is he fills us so much with the benefits of heavenly blessings with salvation. So much so that it can now untether us from the promises of money and wealth. How? Because Jesus gives us far more than we could ever imagine. Ephesians 1, he gives us every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Uh, our Easter sermon from 1 Peter 1, he gives us an inheritance that's an imperishable and undefiled and unfading. You look at the book of Revelation, he gives us this new city where the street of the city is lined and made of pure gold. All of this language is pointing to the fact that Jesus has made us rich in him, not with material wealth and possessions, which can fade away, which moth can destroy, which can be lost at the blink of a huge recession, but he gives us something that is eternal and long-lasting. And you see, friends, if we are lacking in generosity or if it's hard for us to be generous, 
Um, I don't want you to feel guilty about that because guilt is not powerful to free us from money and make us generous people. Um, manipulation uh, of like advertisers and fundraisers is not enough to make you generous because you're only going to give to the degree that uh, you can tolerate and it won't be sacrificial. How about tax benefits? Will that make you more beneficial? No, tax benefits won't make you more gener beneficial and <laughs> generous. Um, the only thing that can really make us generous is a transformed heart. The only way we can have a transformed heart is when we realize the power in Jesus' work on the cross. The only way that our hearts will be transformed and we won't hold so tightly to things that we value and look for uh, the things that we value in our finances and in our money and be able to let go of it a little bit more is when we feel the conviction and when we experience the truth that Jesus Christ has made us infinitely rich in him. Not with material possessions, not with material wealth, but with spiritual wealth, which is, at the end of the day, far more important than material wealth, and at the end of the day, are the very things that we are looking for in our material wealth. And I think if God can do that for us, then we find ourselves being free from money and having the ability to be incredibly generous. And of course, Paul's talking here about uh, money and finances, but you can extend that to all other resources that we find uh, to be incredibly important, probably for m many of us, is time, uh, that we can be generous with our time. Uh, many of us are getting older and feel more tired, so our energy, right? <laughs> Being generous with our energy. Uh, whatever it is, it, it starts with the heart, and it starts with the conviction that God has given us so much. That's why we started today's worship with uh, a psalm of giving thanks. Um, Giving thanks is a good practice because uh, I think by default, and I feel it too, by default, it's so easy to feel like we don't have enough here. Um, cost of living is so high. Inflation is rising. Everything is so expensive, right? This is the time to feel like very uneasy about our finances. Um, but the thing that you want most, the security that you want most, the joy that you want most, the comforts that you want most, don't look for it in money, friends. It will only disappoint. But find it in Christ. Let's pray. God, we thank you so much that you have given us so much. And that, um, you know, the work of Jesus Christ is characterized as a work of generosity. And I don't know, I, I have a sense that, um, you know, I don't fully uh, understand the depths of that generosity and I haven't fully been able to communicate the depth of that generosity and um, you know part of it is that it's just so wonderful to imagine that it's hard to believe that it's reality but we pray God for your Holy Spirit to come and to touch our hearts and to help us to understand the reality of your grace this wonderful gift that you have given us in the person and work of Jesus Christ this great salvation, this great inheritance, all the spiritual blessings that we need the gift of faith to be able to see and to live by. And we pray, God, that you would uh, soften our hearts and melt our hearts and free us from enslavement to our, um, to our finances, to our wealth. And you would give us a true sense of freedom to be able to be generous, but more importantly, um, a true sense of freedom to give to you and to others 
uh, whatever you call us to give. In Jesus' name we pray.